So please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first seven verses, which has to do with the qualifications of the elder. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to this text, we are reminded of the type of person that you call to be in your church, to work for your church, to serve your church. And we are not worthy. Um, as we read this, this text, we are reminded of our unworthiness. And so we rely on you, our strength, our sustainer, the one that keeps us, the one that lifts our head, our shield, our protector. We ask that you shield us from the evil one this morning as we come to your word, that you would convict our hearts of sin and lead us to the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so as I read this passage, um, I thought of an individual who was considered uh, one of the best ever at his craft. Uh, this, there's a word in this passage that made me think of him. It's the word above reproach. And uh, as we're nearing this particular time in the summer, uh, today is actually very important as, as this individual is concerned. He was born the eighth of nine children, an Italian family when it wasn't well thought of to be an Italian family in this country. His craft was baseball. It was, it was considered a national pastime then, more so than it is today. Uh, he was actually one of three of his brothers that would be professional baseball players, all playing the position of center field. Um, his first two years might be the best two years of any baseball player ever, much less a rookie, because, uh, I mean, obviously as his first two years, he shouldn't have been putting up the numbers that he was, but he was. It was incredible. He went on to play many more great seasons for the greatest team in the land at the time. At the time, the Yankees. Not anymore. Sorry, Logan. Uh, but at the time, they were great. They were incredible. He put his career on hold to serve our country during World War II, but came back, finished his Hall of Fame career. Uh, and of course, you may have figured it out by now. I'm talking about Joe DiMaggio. Why do I want to talk about him? Well, because on this date in 1941, he hit in his 56th consecutive baseball game, which is kind of unreal. Uh, when a 300 hitter is considered a good thing, that means they get out 70% of the time. He hit 56 straight games. It's a streak that still stands. Arguably one of the greatest records in sports. Definitely the greatest in baseball. Uh, as for hitting a baseball, Joe was above reproach. What does that mean? We don't use those words a lot of time. Above reproach, meaning that he was above criticism. Not that he walked around arrogantly above criticism, but that no one literally could criticize the way that he hit. He was that good. And so in that, 40, in that 1941 season, he was about as perfect as any hitter could be. Now, what does that have to do with our text today? Well, Paul is going to lay out qualifications of the office of elder in this section. An elder is called to be above reproach or above criticism. 
This is an impossible feat as well, even more impossible than Joe DiMaggio's 56 straight games. And Paul says that anyone who aspires to the task of elder aspires to a noble task, a good thing. But it's hard work. And so in this passage, we'll, we'll be shown the qualifications of this office and how the church is then is to respond to that. I also want to talk about our distinction or our distinctions, our uh, distinctives, I guess is a better term, as Presbyterians. Uh, we obviously believe that our interpretation of these passages is correct, or I wouldn't be giving them to you. And so this, this particular passage does shape the way that we think about our government in the church and the way that we think about the offices in the church. And so I want us to talk about that. Uh, since our church is gathered from every denomination, um, all of us, I don't... Um, We've, we're all kind of gathered in, and, be, and so it's, I think it's good for us to understand what our distinctives are as Presbyterians here today. And so we're going to consider three ideas from this text. The, the elder is above reproach, the elder is well thought of, and then the office of the elder is an impossible task. And so with that, let's look then at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. First Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit or fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Amen. This is God's Word. You can be seated. And I think it's important for us to remember, I recently uh, overheard a conversation concerning this actual passage where it was a panel of pastors discussing this passage. And one of them even said that this was Paul's opinion, that he had concerns about Paul's uh, past as a Pharisee and didn't think that these words were prescriptive for the church today. This is God's holy word. It is absolutely prescriptive for the church today. And so let's not begin to wander off into that fancy. As we begin talking about the, uh, the church history during, in Sunday school, we're also going to see men and women who, who stray from God's word. And I think it's important for us to remember that. I say that every time when we finish reading the scriptures, but it's important for us to ground ourselves. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. It stands the test of time. It is true today, and so we have to be careful to understand it. The term elder is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, it refers to the group of men who oversaw Israel. It's often used, the word overseer there in the New Testament. It's, that's why it's used there. Uh, it's oversaw Israel in their day-to-day -day matters as well as in larger decisions. Turn with me to Exodus 18. This is a good passage for some grounding 
in the office of elder. Exodus 18. Starting at verse 13. Remember Moses. Moses was the one who led these people out of Israel. Remember Moses had been a sheep uh, herder and had married, and he had a father-in-law named Jethro. Well, Jethro has come to visit him, and so that's kind of the context of this passage. And so I'm going to read the rest of this chapter. I think it's important for us to understand the, the grounding for the office of elder, and I think it's great in this passage. So let's look here. The next day Moses set to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Now remember Moses, was a, he had several hundred thousand people with him crossing through the desert. And so the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and or another, and I make them know the statuses of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and the God and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people of chiefs as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all his people also will go to their place in peace. It's pretty incredible that Moses, the great prophet, the great leader of the people of Israel, was attempting to do this all alone. And Jethro set him straight, and he did. He appointed elders, and it was better with the people. And so what about in the New Testament? Look at First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. We've looked at several texts that refer to the elders of, of Israel. This is another one that we'll be looking at here now and again towards the end. First Peter chapter 5, I'll read verses 1 through 3. This is the Apostle Peter. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So here in First Peter, here in Peter, the apostle is instructing the churches 
on how they should lead. And it's the, the role of elder is the role of what? The role of a shepherd. Acts chapter 20, you don't have to go there. We've read that recently where Paul was uh, giving a farewell message to the elders at Ephesus. Titus 1, which we will look at uh, in a few weeks, is also a call to uh, the elders. Uh, Acts 14, we could just keep going. Acts 15, uh, there are elders in the New Testament as well as the Old. The New Testament uses the word, uh, two words for the office of elder. The word episkopos, where we get, uh, you know, think of episcopalians, where we get the word bishop, and the word presbyteros, which is obviously where we get our word presbyterian. Um, and most scholars agree that these two words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament to mean the same thing. In the Presbyterian Church, we are considered an elder-led church, meaning that we believe the elders are the ruling office of the church, because we see that in the Old and New Testament. The elders of a local church uh, make up what's called the session of the church. Now, this is called, you'll, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as the first court. And I think you, uh, when we read the passage there in Exodus, you kind of get the idea of what that means. Not necessarily a court of law, uh, and you know, like we would think of like the courthouse downtown, but it is some place where... We counsel the church, where we lead the church, where sometimes, unfortunately, we have to settle disputes, where we counsel the church and shepherd the church in the spiritual well-being. It's something that the local church does. Well, the next level, uh, where all the elders in a geographic region make up what's called the presbytery. This is the second court in our denomination. You've heard me talk about going to Presbytery before. There's pastors from Memphis and pastors from Mississippi and Little Rock and different areas that come together and we all meet together. What do we talk about? Well, things that concern all of us. We're not necessarily talking about what's going on here, but we are talking about things that may concern all of us. Usually how much you know money to do with this or that and just and talking about bigger issues. And then we have this the whole denomination, which is called the General Assembly or the General Synod, and this is the third court, and this is the matters that affect our whole denomination. So that's kind of how we're organized as a Presbyterian. We derive this structure from Acts 15, other places in Scripture, so this isn't an arbitrary structure, that, but we do believe that Scripture teaches this. And in this way, what's going on? Well, here I am, one of the elders of the church, preaching, and I'm also held accountable by a group of men called the Presbytery, that, are, that want to know what's going on in this church. I'm not a rogue element, just out, thrown out, doing my own thing, but they are wondering, what's going on in your church? Tell us what's going on. It's a good thing. Uh, we're held accountable at multiple levels. The church is then protected from loonies who might enter into that office. Isn't that a good thing? All right, it's a good thing. It gives the church a place to talk about issues, be productive in a judicious manner, the elders most importantly function as shepherds of the flock, watching over, guiding the people. So I think it's important for us to understand our structure as, as a church as we go into this. Uh, Andy and I are both elders in this church. Um, Pastor Don in New Geneva is an elder. And so we, you understand how the church is structured. Both the pastors and the, uh, the other elders uh, make up this office. And so first, I want to talk about these qualifications. The first point, then, is the elder is to be above reproach. Uh, he, he says this, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. In my studies of this passage, I believe this to be kind of the overarching concept that speaks to the rest of the qualifications. The word literally means unable to grab hold of. Think of what I think of is like a big, you know, imagine like a big heavy ball or something that didn't have any handles on it that was smooth. You couldn't grab it. There's no place to, to lift it up. There's no place to, to catch hold of it. And so to be above reproach is something that's so polished, there's no way to grab it. There's no way to, to, to stop it. And so it's above criticism. There's nothing that you can look at that person and say, I got him. He's above reproach. And so with that, Paul lays out the rest of these qualifications. And I want to work through these quickly. I'm more concerned about the application here. Uh, If you have questions about them, we can definitely talk about this. But there's just some... You know, it's all, it's just, just a list of terms, and I think they're, they're basically understandable. The husband of one wife, and so I think this means that this office is for a man. Uh, this is a prescriptive verse, and what do I mean by that? That, this is, that Paul is prescribing a particular way for the church. He's not describing his church. He's prescribing the way the church ought to be. When we see a woman taking up this role in the scriptures, which there are several instances, we have to understand it in the light of this verse, which is very plain. You know, one of the passages that's often referred to, a common example, is Deborah in the book of Judges who rose to power. Why did she rise to power? For lack of any qualified men. And you have one of the unqualified men that's with her in the passage, Barak, who was kind of afraid to do anything. And, and you read in that passage, and what is this considered? It's considered a judgment on Israel. Uh, others are used that to, to kind of bring that in. But again, this verse, especially with the teaching that we just read in chapter 2, limits this office to men. I don't want to labor this point. Uh, many have. If you're interested, I have some good reading on the subject. Just let, let, let me know. I have very good and thorough books, but I think it's plain, and so I don't want to labor this point. The elder should be sober-minded. The the literal word there is not drunk. Um, He is to be clear-minded. His judgment is not to be clouded. Uh, Since there's, uh, you know, uh, later in the text, there's not a drunkard, literally. I think we're to understand this as someone who is able to make sound judgments They're to be self-controlled, meaning balanced and disciplined. They're not uh, prone to just doing random things that don't make any sense. They're respectable, meaning they're ordered. The word respectable actually comes from what we the word cosmos, which means world. So I think of an ordered mind, uh, one who's able to think, and it's almost like a scientific kind of term. Hospitable literally means loving strangers, is welcoming to all people, able to teach, uh, not a drunk, both very straightforward, um, not violent, uh, literally not a striker. Um, If your first inclination is to hit someone, then you probably shouldn't be an elder. Um, And then it gives us the opposite term of that, gentle. We should be gentle, Uh, not, not a striker, not quarrelsome. The word quarrelsome here is, liter- is where we get the word macho, um, which, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, so not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, 
again, very straightforward, but though it's very deep, it speaks to our basic idolatries as people. Uh, we love money, and Jesus knew that, and so the elder should not be a lover of money. And I want to stop there at this point. How do we apply these things to the church? Paul has this very specific list. He gives the list again in Titus 1. I first thought about lumping the two together today, but I thought Titus 1 deserved its own separate look because of some of the context, and so we'll do that then. But there's another list there that's very similar to this one. And so how should we use this when it comes to the office of elder? Well, first, I think we have to be very careful when we choose men for this role. This is a very careful thing. This is not something we should just idly or arbitrarily do. In our tradition, in the Presbyterian tradition, the congregation chooses the men who will serve in this role. We distinguish between two types of elders, the teaching elder, which is for ministry, usually an ordained pastor, and the ruling elder, which are the other elders on the local session. Some churches consider this matter every year. The church may bring it up and say, now we're appointing elders, and they'll put it out to the congregation. And what the congregation will do is they'll submit names, and, uh, and then the session will take it up for consideration. So it's, it's, the congregation is very much involved in this. This isn't like a, some ruling class of church member, but this is a very um, representative way of looking at things. The, the congregation should be able to look at a man in the church and say that is one of our elders and then appoint them to that role. Uh, sometimes it can be less regular or more regular depending on when the need arises. However, our understanding of these qualifications must be understood that few can do this. Uh, this isn't something that we, it's, it's not like a, um, like a hierarchy. Well, when I get older, I'll be an elder because that's just what older people do. That's, we don't need to look at that as this office. It doesn't make these men better than the rest of the church either. So make sure you understand that. Any more than the pastor is the most holy, best person in the church. You guys know that firsthand. It's not that the elder is like some spiritual savant, but the elder is a role just like any other gift in the church is. And that person has been chosen and given the gifting by God to do that thing. And so we don't need to see this as something we need to attain to just so that we can have some sort of prestige about us. This is a particular calling, just like we have all sorts of callings in ministry. And in many ways... These are all qualifications that we should strive for, right? I mean, all of us want to be above reproach. All of us want to be respectable. And so we're not just limiting these things to one type of person. But for the, for the elder, these are qualifications that he must have. And so in this way, it's a very high calling. I've been a part of churches where there were men serving in the role of elder who shouldn't have been. And what happens in that situation? What happens when you have a shepherd that's leading the sheep that doesn't know anything about sheep? It's bad for the sheep. It's a bad thing for the church, not just the individual serving in that role, because he is supposed to watch over his flock. So it's important. If the sheep have an incapable shepherd, they are open to any wolf that may come in. They're open to being led by another. I think we've seen throughout Scripture as we've looked at the 
as we've looked at even this book and, uh, you know, with the, church, the problems in the church in Ephesus, as we looked at the Gospel of John, we saw that. Um, sheep who don't trust their shepherd tend to wander away. And I think we've all seen that in, in the lives of churches that we've been a part of. And secondly, once chosen, the church then must submit to the authority of the elders and uphold them in that position. Peter commands this in 1 Peter 5. And Hebrews 13, 17 is another great verse for this. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Is it of an advantage for the sheep to make the shepherd's life difficult? No. And so I think this is a great summary of how the church can help the elder lead the church well. It's an important job for the church to, to satisfy this. You don't want just anyone coming in and serving the church. And I think that's for the role of pastor, for the teaching elder, but also for the ruling elders as well. It takes a very special person to do this office. And leading to the next point, the elder is well thought of. He must be able to manage his own house well. Because someone who doesn't do this is not well thought of. Paul even makes a great point. How can someone manage the flock of God if they can't manage their own flock? For me, this is the first qualification. When I've seen men come for, for elder, I ask them questions about their family. I'm not really concerned if they can tell me uh, the perfect theological treatise of the doctrine of the Trinity if their kids aren't acting right and their marriage isn't good. None of that makes sense if their home life isn't working. This is an important role that the church has in selecting the elder. The church, must, the church that sees a man unable to lead his family is seeing a man unable to be elder. I actually wrote my seminary thesis on this exact topic. I've seen it play out in many different ways, and it's complicated, but it's still very plain. You lead your family well. Uh, not a recent convert. Why is this? Because the role will go to their head. Uh, it will. 100% chance. Again, what does recent mean? What is Paul saying? Not a recent convert. You would think that most of the people were recent converts in those days. Again, this is what the congregation gets to decide. The congregation can make this decision. This doesn't mean that only, uh, quote-unquote, old men should serve in this role. But it does mean that the younger a man is, the more wisdom he has to prove, I think. And again, and this is important for a church to recognize, in the church, age is a very valuable thing, very valuable thing. The New Testament, over and over, gives us value of age. And we should never discount anyone because of their age, particularly the older generation. And I think it's important for the younger men to sit under those men before they attain to this office. If you show me a young man who says, hey, I want to be an elder, hmm, he's got a lot to learn. All right? And so that's an important thing. I think the young men need to sit under the older men to learn that. To show me uh, a young man without the leadership of older men, and I'll show you a train wreck waiting to happen. Uh, it just is a thing. They must be well thought of by outsiders as well. What does that mean? Who are the outsiders? These are folks not in the church. 
Why is this? Why do we care what the unbelieving world thinks about who our elders are? Because the unbelieving world's number one accusation to the church is that we are full of hypocrites, right? And where do they see this portrayed most publicly? By elders, by pastors of churches, by leaders in churches. And so it's important for the church to select men who are well thought of in their communities, who aren't going to be doing dumb things in order to make the church look bad. We're the bride of Jesus Christ. Do we want men misrepresenting us? No. We believe that Jesus is the power to save, obviously. The Spirit does the work in a lost person's heart and converts. We're not trying to convince people to come, obviously, by seeing how good someone is. However, he chooses to use the preaching of the church and our preaching is just empty words unless we are practicing what we preach. That goes for all of us, not just those who aspire to be elder. A man can't be respected if he doesn't live according to his own code. So lastly, the office of elder is an impossible task. What do I mean by that? I think as we see this, these um, qualifications outlined here very plainly, my first question is, who is able to do this? Who is able? No one. Outside the help of the great elder, the great shepherd of his people, our Lord Jesus. Go back to 1 Peter 5 with me. And I want to read that whole section there in its entirety. If, you, if you've read Peter's story, which I'm sure most of you have, you know Peter was a man that needed some instruction. Even after Jesus went to be in heaven, Peter still struggled. And it's great to read Peter's words here as he considers the office of elder. I'll read again the first three verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now this is what Peter has to say about the impossibility of the task. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in, at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your activity or all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who is called who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ is the one who gives the unfading crown of glory. But is that given just to the elder? Absolutely not. It's given to all his children. Why? Why do we get an unfading crown of glory? Do we deserve it? No. It's because he is good. Because he is righteous. Because he traded our filthy rags for his righteous robe. He says in verse 10 that he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We are told the devil is a roaring lion. And that may seem kind of scary, but he is only a tame kitty compared to the lion of Judah, Jesus Christ our Lord, the chief shepherd, the one who calls us, that we hear his voice and we are comforted. Were it up to our own merit and our own wisdom, we'd never We'd only ever choose bad elders to lead us. And those of us who aspire to be elders would only ever be bad ones. The church would be in trouble if it weren't for the Lord of the church. But because of the grace of God, churches choose good elders. They raise up good elders, which again is an important role for the church. That those among us who are learning, who are still young, would grow up to be elders in his church part of the covenant community and by his grace and until he comes we will continue to have faithful men to serve this role and we're thankful for that and so in conclusion first to anyone who would aspire to that to those of you who are that we can't do it alone i think that's important we depend first on the lord our lord and savior jesus christ who keeps us who establishes us we depend on the church and that's to the church as well the church We depend on the church to love and care for us. We're not capable of leading without the love and care of the church. It's it's impossible. Um, And to the elder, take the opposite advice. We have to be lovable. We can't be domineering or hard like Peter said. We shouldn't do that. I think Paul's instructions for us and his commands to us are good to that end. I think second, what should the church do in response to this? We should pray for our elders, not just here in this church or a presbytery, or our denomination, but in all churches. We should pray for those men who are standing in that position. And lastly, let us, let us never cease giving thanks to our chief elder, the shepherd of our souls, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's to him we give praise and honor. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you have established your church, you have established each one of us, you keep us and you guard our souls from the evil one who is seeking to devour us even now, but you are stronger. You are able. You make us able. And we are thankful for that. Lord, guide your church. Lead your church as the chief shepherd. Shepherd our souls even when we would wander, even when we would see something that we think is better and brighter than you. There is nothing better or brighter. So, Lord, lead us to you. Keep us near you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.